will be in John chapter 18. We have completed the longest discourse by Christ in the Bible. It's referred to as the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus and His disciples make their way from the Upper Room, descend the Mount of Olives heading westward toward Jerusalem. Some would consider the end of the discourse to be concluded there at the end of chapter 16. Some include chapter 17, but it really doesn't matter to me where you place the end of the discourse. Jesus stops and He prays, probably somewhere near the base of the mountain. He prayed for Himself to be glorified. He prayed for His disciples to be sanctified. And He prayed for us to be unified. And in Jesus' prayer, which is the entirety of chapter 17, it is often called the high priestly prayer of Christ because we get a glimpse into Christ's ministry now where He's at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. And this brings us now to chapter 18. And we'll spend our time today considering the symbolism that's found in verse 1. And I'm sure a much better preacher could draw this out for you. I see Pastor Clems here and he could do a much better job at it. But I'm going to give it a shot nonetheless. And so we'll read verse 1. It says in John chapter 18 and verse 1, When Jesus had spoken these words, He went forth with His disciples over the brook Cedron, where was a garden into which He entered and His disciples. And so after Jesus' discourse and prayer, He leads His disciples over the brook Cedron in the Greek tongue here. But it's found several times in our Old Testament as Kidron in the Hebrew. And since I'm from Georgia, I'm going to say Kidron. And I think that's acceptable. I don't know for sure. But that's how we're going to go with it today. The Mount of Olives lies just to the east of Jerusalem. So the brook Kidron separates the two mountains where Jerusalem is and the Mount of Olives. And that area is called the Kidron Valley. And so Jesus and His disciples are now at the base of these two mountains. And out of the four gospel accounts, John is the only one that records this. And we know the Bible was written under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And so there must be a reason why this is given to us here in John's gospel account. What is so significant about Jesus crossing over the brook Kidron? Well, if you know your Old Testament, that verse may already sound familiar to you. Approximately a thousand years before this point, there was another king which passed over the brook Kidron that the Bible makes a special reference to, and it's found in 2 Samuel 15. I'm just going to give you the recount. We don't have to turn there for sake of time. David was king in Israel, and he had a rebellious son named Absalom. The Bible says that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And he did so by subverting his father and hearing those who would come to the king for judgment. Long story short, Absalom pretended that he needed to go to Hebron to pay a vow unto the Lord. He said, if I, he told his father, if, if the Lord brought me back to Jerusalem, I'd have to pay this vow. So, of course, his father lets him go and 
But Absalom was using that really as a cloak for his deceitfulness and his plot against his own father. And he sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, and he instructed them, saying, As soon as ye hear the sound of the trumpet, then ye shall say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. And Ahithophel, David's counselor, was also in cahoots with Absalom. And that's interesting. We're not going to go there today, but if I remember correctly, Ahithophel would have been Bathsheba's grandfather. They're related. And many believe Ahithophel wanted to conspire against David because he still held resentment for what David did with Bathsheba. Just an interesting thought there, I don't know. But the Bible says the conspiracy was strong for the people increased continually with Absalom. And there came a messenger to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. And upon that news, David said unto all his servants in Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for we shall not escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly, and bring evil upon us, and smite the city with the edge of the sword. And then in 2 Samuel 15, 23, we read, And all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people passed over. The king also himself passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. And in verse 30 of that same chapter, it says, And David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olivet, Olivet, and he wept as he went up. And this is interesting. I don't know if there's more to this than meets the eye, but it's interesting to me that we have this account of two kings that have crossed over the brook Kidron. The people of Israel reject David, their anointed king, as and David flees Jerusalem, and he crosses over the brook Kidron up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he goes. And Absalom represents those in Israel who would one day reject their anointed king, the one who was born king, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. And in Luke's gospel account, as Jesus is about to make His triumphal entry a week before our text, He comes down the Mount of Olives and He gets a sight of Jerusalem. And the Bible says, as He beheld the city, He wept over it, much like David did. It says in Luke 19, 42, If thou hast known even thou at least in this thy day the things which belong unto thy peace, but now are they hid from thine eyes. And Ahithophel, who betrayed David, represents Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Christ. Both were conspirators from within. They were one of their own. But both became the betrayers of their king. On one hand, we see David the rejected king, fleeing Jerusalem, crossing over the brook Kidron and ascending the Mount of Olives. And in our text, we see Christ, the greater David, the rejected king, descending the Mount of Olives, heading toward Jerusalem, crossing the brook Kidron. And David, we see, he fled away from the city, fearing that they would be overtaken and that this evil would come upon him. And he fled because he feared Absalom would smite the city with the edge of the sword if need be. On the other hand, we find Jesus, he goes towards the city knowing he's going to be overtaken and that a great evil would be brought upon him and he knew his enemies were going to come at him with swords. In David's day, I believe we see the frailty of man as he flees into the wilderness for his life. 
But in Christ, we see the power of God as He goes from the wilderness to the city to give life. Amen. Jesus, who knew no sin, knowingly made His way to give His life a ransom for many in dying a sinner's death. He knowingly headed towards being scourged and mocked and beaten and crucified. He was going to fulfill God's will for His life. In Isaiah chapter 50, verses 5-7, through it says, The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from the shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. The Bible says Jesus set His face like a flint to make a way for sinners to be reconciled to God. Which means this, Jesus was resolute and He was unwavering. Despite all that Jesus was about to endure, there was no shadow of turning. He was unrelenting and heading to the sufferings of the cross. He was determined to save sinners. The Bible says in Luke 9.51, And it came to pass when the time was come that He should be received up, He steadfastly set His face to go to Jerusalem. He knew He would become sin. He knew He was going to endure the wrath of God. He knew He would be made a curse, but He did not flee. He crossed the brook Kidron, knowing full well what lay in store. And He pressed on for the joy that was set before Him. And He endured the cross and He despised the shame. And what was the joy that was set before Him? It was us. Yes, it was that He would be again at the right hand of the Father, but the joy was also you and I. It was our salvation. His joy was to save sinners. His joy was to redeem a multitude which no man can number out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And I hope you're in that number today. Well, I sense there's a lot more we could draw out there. I'm sure there's a better message in there of these two kings that cross this brook. But let's move on. There's another significant picture in Christ crossing over the brook Kidron in John 18.1. Kidron is mentioned in ten verses in our Old Testament. Two of those refer to a boundary marking. One of those refers to that account with David. The other seven, where it mentions Kidron, they all have one thing in common. And they deal with the removal of idolatry and sin in the land. 2 Chronicles 15.16 says, And also concerning Maacah, the mother of Asa the king, he removed her from being queen because she had made an idol in a grove. And Asa cut down her idol and stamped it and burnt it at the brook Kidron. In Josiah's day in 2 Kings 23, he cleanses the temple of all the vessels that were made for Baal and he burned them in the fields of Kidron. Goes on to say in 2 Kings 23 6, and he brought out the grove from the house of the Lord without Jerusalem unto the brook Kidron, and burned it at the brook Kidron, and stamped it into small powder, 
and cast the powder thereof upon the graves of the children of the people. And then in verse 12 it says, And the altars that were on the top of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, did the king beat down and break them down from thence and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. In Hezekiah's day, the priest cleansed the temple and they brought out all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the Lord into the, uh, and also into the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it, the Bible says, to carry it abroad into the brook Kidron. Second Chronicles 30.14 says, And they arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem and all the altars for incense took they away and cast them into the brook Kidron. There's a message here somewhere, amen? This brook Kidron, we find it in the Old Testament being used as a place where the kings who sought to do right in the eyes of the Lord would try to clean the land and they would tear down the high places and the groves and the idol worship and they would burn them there at the brook Kidron. And we saw in at least two cases where they cast the remains of that into the brook. And as Jesus crosses over this same brook, we see that they entered into a garden. That's what verse 1 tells us. Now John doesn't tell us where, but we know from Matthew and Mark that they enter the Garden of Gethsemane. Now keep in mind, the brook Kidron is this place where this sin would be taken, and they would, they would burn it, they would stamp it, they would grind it into a powder, if you will, they would press it, whatever term you want to use, and then they would cast that into the brook. And here's Jesus and His disciples, and they cross over the brook Kidron and they enter into the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, Gethsemane means an oil press. An oil press for all you Yankees. It was more than just this decorative garden. It was actually a place where they processed the, the olives. And so this oil press, they would use They would take this stone wheel and they would press the olives and they would extract the oil from that. And they would use it for a number of things, most importantly, I guess, in context of Christ. They would use it for lamp oil, and they would also use it as one of the ingredients of the holy anointing oil, which is mentioned back in Exodus on how to make it. One of the ingredients was the olive oil. And so while John doesn't record the events that took place in between verse 1 and verse 2 of John chapter 18, the other gospel writers do. And I want us to go to Luke chapter 22 as we consider a couple things. In Luke chapter 22, and I want to read verses 39 through 46. And we're going to get a little bit of what happened in between verse 1 and verse 2. John just goes straight from the garden to the betrayal, but we know there was a lot that took place in between there if you know the other Gospels. And so in Luke chapter 22, it says beginning in verse 39, And he came out and went, and as he was wont, or as his custom was, as he was wont to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray ye that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said unto them, Why sleep ye? 
Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. I want you to take notice right now, again, of verse 44. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. And so here's Jesus, having just passed over the brook Kidron, where all manner of sinful practices and idolatry were burnt, they were stamped, they were pressed into this powder, they were cast into the brook Kidron there in the Old Testament. And here Jesus, He enters Gethsemane, or the oil press, and we find Jesus being pressed out Himself. He's in such agony that He's under all this stress and He's being so pressed that the Bible says His sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling to the ground. I would say that's being pressed out. Jesus, who is sinless, knows He's about to take all of our sinfulness upon Himself. This is just the beginning of what Christ would endure for us. And in Him being pressed, the oil from the light of the world is being prepared. And from Him being pressed, the anointing oil is beginning to be drawn out. Through Jesus' pressing out, He's going to light the way for all mankind. And He will anoint with oil any who will walk with Him. Amen. That's where we go, whoop! Amen. We can can have the anointing of the Holy Ghost upon us thanks to Jesus being pressed out. And as Kidron was used as the place to remove sin, Jesus will take our sin and He's going to grind it into powder. He's going to cast it all away forever. As far as the east is from the west. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Now there's something which I feel needs to be addressed from this passage in Luke. Even though John doesn't record it, the other three do, and for some of you it may be on your mind. I believe it's worth taking the time to discuss as Jesus is heading into His suffering. Let's take note of verse 42 again. Jesus prayed, Father, if Thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but Thine be done. So there's a debate over what this cup represents. Many say when Jesus prayed for the cup to be removed, He was praying that He would not have to go to the cross. That if it were possible, then perhaps God would make another way. And those who have that opinion say it shows Jesus' humanity. That while He was all God, He was also all man. And that He did not want to go through what He was about to endure as a man. And while you don't have to agree with me on this, I find this interpretation difficult to accept. I personally do not believe Jesus was praying for another way to avoid His physical sufferings. We've already seen how Jesus set His face like a flint. He was going to go to Jerusalem. He was going to go to the cross. And let's remember this. He's the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He knew what He was going to endure. 
1 Peter 1, 18-20 says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Christ's sacrificial death was foreordained before there was a Garden of Eden. Before the sin of and the fall of mankind, the way of redemption was already planned. He's the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It was already predetermined that redemption would come through the blood of Christ. And He's called there a Lamb, which means, I think it's clear that what it's saying is, as a Lamb, the way He's going to have His blood drawn is He's going to shed that blood through a sacrifice, being the spotless Lamb of God. Titus 1-2 says, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. God promised Christ's sacrificial death as the means of eternal life before the world ever began. And God cannot lie. Therefore, there was no other way for salvation to be wrought. And Jesus was God in the flesh. God said in Genesis 3.15 that Satan would bruise the heel of the coming promised seed. Psalm 22, in very clear detail, foretells of the crucifixion of Christ. Isaiah 53 talks of Christ's suffering. Daniel 9.26 says that the Messiah would be cut off. There's a lot of verses that talk about it. Zechariah declares Christ's death. It was foretold. There's dozens of passages that talk about Christ's life, ministry, and even His sufferings. Even Jesus foretold of His sufferings and death. Matthew 16, 21, it says, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto His disciples that He must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23, it says, And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, the Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill Him. And the third day He shall be raised again, and they were exceeding sorry. In Matthew 20, verses 17-19, through And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way, and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priest and unto the scribes. And they shall condemn him to death, and he shall, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. And, and Mark and Luke record the same. And even after Christ rose again, there appeared two angels to the women that went to the sepulcher to anoint the body of Jesus, expecting him to be in there, but hallelujah, he'd already risen. And so the angel says, He's not here, but He's risen. Remember how He spake unto you when He was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. There are too many verses throughout the Bible which speak of how Christ must suffer 
that I do not believe when Jesus prayed for the cup to be removed that he was seeking for a different way. Well, what does the cup mean then? He clearly asked for a cup to be removed. Just my opinion, you can agree or disagree, we're not going to divide over it, amen? I think you can make a case either way, but I'm giving you my opinion. I believe what Jesus was dreading more than the physical agonies of the cross was Him being separated from His Father while on the cross. You see, God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. Listen now. And in so doing, God was going to have to reject His only begotten Son. Up until that point, there had always been perfect union between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Nothing had ever disrupted that. But that fellowship was broken on the cross when Christ became sin. Matthew 27, 45 and 46 says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I believe that's the cup that Jesus did not want to drink. That it was the greatest of agonies for our Lord to be separated from God the Father. He never questioned the pains of the cross. He never flinched in going to Jerusalem. He set His face like a flint. And He went and He was going to do the Father's will. But what He did question is, God, why did You forsake me? Now listen to me, if you'll get a hold of this, it'll change your view of God, salvation, Christianity as a whole. If you'll understand that God rejected His Son. Just think of it. How can it be? But Jesus drank that bitter cup for you. Do you hear what I said? It was for you. Hey, listen. God forsook His Son for you. Jesus was separated from the Father so that you could be with the Father. You understand the significance? Psalm 110 is such a great prophecy of our Lord. If you don't remember off the top of your head, this may jog your memory, but it's the psalm that talks about the Lord being a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And at the end of that psalm in verse 7, there's a prophecy that many say was fulfilled in John 18 and verse 1, at least in symbolically. And Psalm 110 verse 7 says, speaking of Christ, He shall drink of the brook in the way. Jesus went by the way of Kidron as He headed toward the cross. And He drank those bitter, sin-filled waters for you. That place where idolatry would be stamped out, that place where the groves would be burnt, that place where they would tear down the altars and the high places and they would grind them up and they would cast them into... Jesus drank 
of our sin. We didn't deserve it. He was not deterred from fulfilling God's will. But he went on to Calvary. And he crossed the brook Kidron. And he was pressed out for you. He died in your place. So that your sins could be washed away forever. Jesus was forsaken for you. So that you would never have to be forsaken by the Father. And all you need to do is cry out to Him. And Him alone for salvation. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. In those days from the Temple Mount, there was a design to where when they would offer the sacrifices, the blood of those animals would run down into the brook Kidron. It is said that during feast days, they would sacrifice so many animals that that brook, which was dry in the dry season, it would flow red from all the blood. Maybe you're saved today. Maybe you're born again, but you know that there's sins in your life that you still need to get rid of. I want to tell you this morning that you need to symbolically go to the Brook Kidron. And you need to allow Christ, your righteous King, to take your sin and burn it, for He's a consuming fire. And stamp it into powder. And cast it into the brook Kidron. Where His blood can wash away every sin. Amen. Listen, we don't have to live in sin. We don't have to let sin reign in our mortal bodies anymore. We don't have to have the high places. We don't have to have the groves. We don't have to have the idol worships. We don't have to bring the the vessels of false gods into the sanctuary. Do you hear what I'm saying? We can be right with God. We can have our sins forgiven. We can stand complete in Him. And all you've got to do is cry out to Him for salvation. And I'm telling you, for those of you in Christ, if you still have sin in your life, you need to get rid of it. But you've got to move towards Him. You've got to move towards Him and you've got to confess your sin. And then you let God do what He does. If you draw near to Him, He'll draw near to you. Listen, we just need to get right with God. Let's pray.